0: Good morning, guys. It's good to be with you all. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to say welcome to you. We are in the middle of this Encountering Jesus series. We've looked at Jesus calming the storm. We've looked at the woman at the well last week. Uh, We've looked at Jesus inviting us to come and see and having a faith like a child. And fundamentally, why we're here. Why are we here? Because we believe that week after week when we open God's word, and we invite him to encounter us. We believe that Jesus is alive. We believe that the Bible is alive and that it's authoritative and it's still speaking. We believe that the same spirit who wrote the Bible is here with us now and that he's changing lives and he's using these times to transform us to be more like Jesus. We're never just going to church. We are inviting the living God to encounter us, which will change us. So I just want to pray to that end because we don't just want to hear a guy talk for the next 30, 40 minutes. We want to encounter the living God through his word. So let's pray to that end. Jesus, we thank you that you are alive. We thank you that your word is alive, that you are speaking through your word. And we just pray that you'd bless this time. Lord, uh, we thank you uh, that you are able uh, to to reach every single person here and what they're walking through. Uh, Some folks came into this place uh, with a lot they're carrying. Some couldn't wait to get here. And Lord, I just pray that you would meet us right here in this place and speak to us through your word. Holy Spirit, uh, would you guide this time? I've got some stuff prepared, but I want to follow you uh, as we have this time in your word. And so, Lord, we thank you. I just pray for the Zias family as they are spending the season in sabbatical and resting, that you would be continuing to fill them, empower them, and just give them a sweet season of rest and reflection, Lord. We pray this all in your name, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. So to kick us off this morning, guys. Have you ever noticed that every day, everyone, everywhere is living out just significant faith? It's just living out of acts of faith everywhere they go. You know, some are are, uh, are maybe smaller. Like every person that eats sushi in Arizona is living out an act of faith, right? Like every time that we ate sushi in Arizona, I lived there for about 10 years, my wife and I, it was an act of faith, let me tell you. And they'd always be like, no, it's, it's in these refrigerated trucks as it comes over. And I'm like, that doesn't make me feel any better you know, eating sushi in Arizona is a step of faith. Eating Taco Bell anywhere is a step of faith. Some of y'all are faith warriors in here, right? You're like, I'm not, like, I'm not a man of faith. It's like, well, Taco Bell says otherwise. Uh, some things, you know, like anytime you get on an airplane, it's a step of faith. You're trusting that this thing is going to go well, right? Like, you are not just flying. Have you ever thought about like the amount of faith you're putting in other drivers as you're driving? Like, you're trusting they're going to stay in those white lines. You're trusting they're paying attention. You're trusting they're not simultaneously messing with their kids in the back, messing with the radio, trying to eat and put on mascara, right? Like, some of y'all are kidding yourselves thinking you can do all that. Uh, Or maybe you have a huge amount of faith that you think that I— Some of us, uh, we take a huge step of faith every morning. Some of y'all, you set your alarms as if every light you're going to hit is green. And then you're always late, and you're always texting, like, I'm on my way. It's like I can not even left the house yet, right? Like, don't be those people. But you have an enormous amount of faith when you set your alarm to be somewhere at 8. You know, you got to be there at 8, and you're setting your alarm at, like, 7.30 or something. Huge, huge step of faith. Right now, you are taking a step of faith by trusting that that chair is going to hold you up, and you're not going to have a very embarrassing situation on your hands, right? Some of you are now very anxious about the chair you're sitting in, and you weren't. Right now, we're having a, a large amount of faith that those beams are going to hold up that roof. More anxiety is flooding the room. Uh, We're we're right now having faith that the engineers and architects designed this this building in a a way that will hold this. And we're trusting that the people that installed those lightings really secured those uh, bolts up there. Whether big or small, we are all operating and living lives full of faith. Some are big, some are small. But today we're going to talk about a massive area of faith, one of the most consequential areas of faith, about where are you putting your faith in, what are you believing in? Who do you have trust in to lead you to experience true, real, eternal life? This is a big one. Today we're looking at Jesus encountering the rich young man, or sometimes church history is called the rich young ruler uh, in Mark 10. And this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. One, because it's just one of the most iconic passages that Jesus uh, encounters someone with. It's also Kind of a tragic story in many ways, and we have some iconic one-liners of Jesus in this thing, and it's one that I think really speaks to us as Americans today. And so I think there's a lot that Jesus has for us. I got three things for us to look at, and the big question we're going to be looking at, it's up on the screen, is what are you trusting in to lead you to life? What are you trusting in to lead you to life? And so we got three things. Number one, the first thing we could trust in would be your goodness. Read with me, Mark 10, verses 17 to 22. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have it. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, All these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. So we're just going to unpack this here. Uh, A man comes to Jesus and asks a version of the question we're asking today good teacher must what what must i do to inherit eternal life what must i do to experience life and then jesus asked him back why do you call me good no one's good except god but we got to pause here for a second we got to be clear jesus isn't saying that he isn't god jesus is not saying i'm not god why do you call me good don't call me good only god's good like he's not deflecting this no in fact it's the opposite jesus is inviting this man subversively to acknowledge two things one that he is in fact not good and he needs God. He's inviting him to acknowledge his dependence on the Lord, that he actually needs God. And then number two, he's also inviting him to acknowledge that he, Jesus, is indeed God. He's inviting him to acknowledge that he's God and acknowledge that he is not good enough. But Jesus just goes with the original question and says, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't lie, don't steal. goes on and on. And the man says, teacher. Notice he doesn't say good teacher anymore. He's not, he's not comprehending that this is God incarnate. This is not, he's not seeing this is God in the flesh. He's not believing that this is the son of God. He just says, teacher, this time. I've done all these since I was a boy. He's saying, I've done that, Jesus. I've kept the commandments. I'm good, Jesus. And then Jesus cuts to the heart. And he has a life-defining encounter with this man. Jesus tells him the one thing that he lacks is go sell everything he has and give it to the poor and to follow him. And then the tragedy of the story is the man walks away sad and does not receive Jesus's invitation. And so we just have to ask, what is going on here? What's going on here? See, the rich young man, this rich young ruler, has a fundamental misunderstanding, and it's found in his initial question. We see it actually in his initial question, how he actually has a a faulty perspective. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a loaded question. It's a question with all kinds of presuppositions. This man presupposes he can do something. He can earn something. He can achieve something to get eternal life, to experience eternal life, to achieve eternal life. And this was a common misunderstanding amongst the people of God in ancient Israel. They thought, if I can just keep the law, then I'll be saved not realizing that the law never saved them. It was always faith in God that saved them. It was a faith in God that led them to respond by keeping the law. Keeping the law didn't save them. They had this fundamental misunderstanding, though, that they thought, if I do good enough, it'll be good enough. The man's fundamental problem is that he's trusting in his goodness and his work to lead to his life. He's misunderstanding that his goodness is enough. And for many of us, 2,000 years later, let's be honest, we have the same misunderstanding. This is just the common belief around us. Uh, I, I was out golfing on our uh, family vacation. My brother and I were out golfing. And uh, we were paired with these young guys who uh, were very bad at golf, uh, let me tell you. Uh, which no one's, uh, and I'm bad at golf, let me tell you. Like, I'm not good. Uh, let's be honest. Everyone's bad at golf. Uh, if you think you're good, you're, you're not. Um, But it's hard to make me look good, and these guys did. I want to go out with them all the time because they actually made me look good. It's hard to make me look like Tiger Woods out there, but they did. I'm telling you, if there was a Nike rep out there, I would have been signed right away to a pro contract because I looked amazing out there, right? And you're out there golfing with guys, and, you know, always you ask the same questions. You know, hey, are you from around here? And I'm like, no, I'm actually, I live up in Oregon. I'm just here in the Bay Area, you know, for vacation. And they're like, oh, what do you do for a living? And then, you know, it's always interesting to see how people respond, right? Because when I say what I do for a living, it's like, well, I'm a pastor. Then you immediately see people like, you know, i got to clean up my language. i got to do things. I'll just say, when I say I'm a pastor, especially at the beginning of a round, it's the world's greatest accountability system. There's just words I can't say out there on the golf course. Golf is hard. It's hard. That one's for free. It's frustrating. That one's also for free. So telling people I'm a pastor helps me uh, bear the fruit of the spirit of self-control. So I I asked them. What's, what's the, you know, I asked these guys, you know, what's their background of spirituality? You know, we had a good conversation. They said they grew up Catholic, uh, but they think now it's just, you know, being a good person. That's what it's about. And then God will be good with you. If you're just a good person, God will be cool with you. And I appreciated their honesty as these guys were just articulating something that our world believes. Just be a good person. And that's good enough for God. Just be a good person. That's good enough. And the question today is what are you putting your trust in? What are you having faith in to lead you to experience true, real, eternal life? And for so many people, the answer is myself. The answer is my goodness. The answer is my morality and my good intentions. I don't really need Jesus' death because I'm a good person. And then you ask me, "Well, why are you a good person? It almost always starts the same way. Well, I haven't killed anybody. And it's like, is that really the bar? (laughs) Wow. Congratulations! You have not killed. You know, Tom has not killed everyone. Give a parade to Tom. He hasn't killed anybody, right? Like, is that really where the bar is? Like, he's just an incredible human being. He hasn't murdered anybody. You know, then he's like, "Oh, I don't lie." I and mean, when you really ask him, it's like, "Well, you know, not about like big stuff, right?" It's like, "You how do you know you're a good person?" It's like, "Well, I'm better than my coworker Susan, right?" Like. You know, everyone's got the Susan in the work. If, if your name is Susan here, today's going to be a rough day, by the way. Uh, you know, like, oh man, like, I'm way better than Susan. She's a piece of work. She, you know, you're just comparing yourself to her, right? You know, you're thinking, like, I, I try to do what's right. Like, God's good with me because I'm a good person. We just got to think about this critically for a second. Why was Jesus tortured to death if we could experience eternal life by just being good? Why would Jesus go voluntarily to the cross to be murdered, to be crucified, if we could just experience eternal life by just, you know, doing some good things? if we could just inherit eternal life by, you know, doing some religious activity, if we could just, you know, be good enough, why would Jesus go to the cross? He even in the Garden of Gethsemane asked, like, Father, if there's another way we can do this, let's do that. And the one that doesn't result in me being tortured to death, being put on the cross to suffer for the sin of the world, if there's another way, if they could just be good enough, if we could just do something else, let's do that. Being good enough was never enough. That's why Jesus died. Your goodness will never be good enough. My goodness, for goodness sakes, pun intended, I guess, will never be good enough. See, the thing our world doesn't understand is that our world is not split up into good people and bad people. The world is not split up into good people and bad people. The only category for people biblically is in Christ or not in Christ. There's only two categories, in Christ or not in Christ. The Bible does not say don't, Don't miss this. We need to hear this in this room. The Bible does not say that the church is full of good people and the world is full of bad people. The Bible does not say that. The Bible says that there is no one good. No, not one. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Christians are not just the good people. Christians are those who have said their goodness is not enough. Christians are people that have said, I have stopped trusting in my goodness to save me and lead me to life. The true Christian says with Paul, I'm the worst of sinners. I'm the worst of sinners. How could God even ever save me? I'm the worst of sinners. I desperately need Jesus to save me. And I trust in His death uh, for me on my behalf. A proud Christian church who relies on their own goodness and who looks down on everybody else is is not just a contradiction. It is blasphemy. Amen? Amen? A proud Christian should be an oxymoron. We should be the most humble of people. We say with the old hymn, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that would save a wretch like me, like us. And if we're honest, like deep down, if we're really honest, if God's perfect, if He's holy, if God is just, and if he can't tolerate evil, if he's awesome and if he's good, and we know we don't measure up. And we know we don't measure up. Deep down, you and I, we know that we're people full of mixed intentions. We're full of mixed intentions. We're full of unkept promises who are far more selfish than we want to admit, who don't do what we should, and do what we shouldn't. We're all people that have brokenness and shame and pain. And the truth that Jesus is encountering us with today is that our goodness cannot save us because we will never be good enough. The hard truth, but this is a hard truth today, but Jesus says the truth will set us free, even the hard stuff. Scripture says that no one's good, no, not one. We need someone else's goodness to cover us. We need someone else's goodness to cover us. And Jesus loves us. He loves you. He loves me. He loves us too much to let us sit in this self-righteousness, in this self-delusion that our goodness will ever be enough. And I I wasn't necessarily planning on sharing this, but I feel compelled to. Like, I know some of us in the room, that's why we're here right now. We're trying to use some religious activity to be good enough. If I can just serve, if I can just give, if I can just do enough church attendance, then maybe I'll be good enough for God. I want to say, like, imagine I have a four-year-old son, and uh, he draws me, you know, pictures. And if he's drawing that picture, he's like, man, I just love my dad. I want to, I want to give something to my dad as a gift because it will bring him joy. Like, I just want to, I want to respond to my dad's love. Like, that's a beautiful thing. It's cute. It's, it's great. goes up on the fridge, all that. But if my son sits there and it's like, I hope if I draw this picture, my dad will love me, and my dad will accept me, and my dad will keep me safe, and my, God, and my dad will bless me. Well, then this whole thing gets twisted and broken. We come here week after week not to earn God's love and acceptance. We come here because we already have it in Jesus. We come here not to achieve a goodness. We come here because we already have it in Jesus. And I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but The question is, what are you trusting to give you life? And Jesus invites us not to trust in our goodness or our effort. He's he's inviting us not to trust in our good intentions. We need someone else's record. We need someone else who's actually good, and we're going to get there. But Back to our text today. Why did Jesus call this man? We we focus in on goodness, but there's also this thing that happens where Jesus says to sell all his possessions. We just got to act like why does Jesus say that? Like, what's going on here? So Jesus invites us not to build our life, to not trust in our goodness, but also number two, you can go to that next slide. He's invited us not to build our life on our wealth. He's inviting us to not build our life on our wealth. So pick it back up in verse 19. Jesus said, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud Honor your father and mother. The man said, he declared, Teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And we're going to zoom in here for a second. We're going to zoom in on this point about what are we trusting to give us life, and we're going to zoom in on this idea of our wealth. Jesus says to the man, you know the commandments, and he lists out most of the Ten Commandments, right? He lists out, you know, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and mother, don't commit adultery. He lists most of the Ten. But notice, it's it's interesting and it's important that Jesus does not include the first two commandments. He doesn't list the first two. You you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first one. The second one is you shall not worship idols. Jesus does not mention those. And 500 years ago, the great reformer, pastor, theologian, Martin Luther, he famously said, about the Ten Commandments, that you never break any of the final eight without breaking the first two. So you never break any of the final eight without first breaking the first two. Well, let me explain this. Why do we steal? Because something has become more important to us than obeying God. Why do we lie? Because someone else's approval has become more central to us and our identity than the approval of Jesus. Why do we commit adultery? Because our affection For another has surpassed and outgrown our affections for God. Or maybe it's because we've chosen to listen to our hearts more than listen to our Lord. Why do we break any of the commandments? Because something has our allegiance more than Jesus. Martin Luther is correct. Whenever we sin, it's because we first made something or someone an idol, and we're serving them and not God. I just want to do a quick definition. When you hear the word idol, I think a lot of things come into our mind. Don't think of like American Idol. Don't think of little gold statues. Think of good things that become God replacements in our life. Think of good things that become God things in our life. An idol is a good thing that we look to and trust in for meaning and security and life and identity. It's something we look to and say, if I just had that, if I just could experience that, then my life would really mean something. Then I'd really be somebody. Then I would really experience the good life. See, it could be be sex, it could be power, it could be relationships. But for the rich young man, and for many of us, let's be honest, his wealth had become an idol. And Jesus is calling him to sell his possessions so that he will be free to worship and free to trust in God alone. Jesus is calling this rich man to sell his possessions so that they will no longer be his master. And I want to ask us a question this morning. I just want to ask us a question. Why don't you look at me? Do you own your wealth or does your wealth own you? Do you own your wealth or does your wealth own you? Do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? When our wealth finds its proper place as a tool for God's glory under his lordship in our life, like that's when we own our wealth is when it finds its proper place under the lordship of Jesus in our lives. When our wealth owns us, it's an idol that preoccupies the place and plays the role of God in our life. Jesus says elsewhere that we can't serve God and money, but we can serve God with our money. See, when when we own our wealth, we use it as a tool for God's glory in our life. When our wealth owns us, we serve it with our life we got to be honest about where are we at in the room right now. Do we see wealth as a tool for God's glory or is it an idol that we're using our life to try to serve it and trust in it and find our identity in it? And there's, there's something important here in verse 21 that I don't want us to miss. And this, this has to shape the tone of this and I hope it shapes how you receive what I'm saying today and we receive how Jesus is telling us this today. Verse 21 says that Jesus looked at him and loved him as he said this. It says he looked at him and he loved him. Why does Jesus call this man to sell everything and be free from the idolatry that's gripping his soul? Why does Jesus call him to do such a radical thing? Because he loves him. It's because Jesus loves him. And Jesus loves you and he loves me too much to let wealth be an idol or a functioning God in our life as well that impedes us from experiencing true life in Jesus. And this text for us today, it's a warning. It's a warning to us, church. And the tragedy is this man, he goes away sad, unable to part from his idol. It's a tragic story. He goes away sad, unable to part from his idol that is wealth. And then from there, we see what Jesus says in verse 23. It'll be up on the screen. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. Why were they amazed? Because in their context, they believed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing and favor and acceptance upon them. And so they're saying if, if, if the rich can't even be, like if it's hard for the rich to get in, oh my goodness, how hard is it going to be for everybody else? Like who, what hope is there for anybody? And Jesus is turning these things on their head. He says later that the first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus is saying, you think it's wealth that is the demarcation of favor? He's saying the first are going to be last and the last will be first. He's turning things on their head, as Jesus so often does. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And we've got to be like, what do we do with this passage? Like, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus literally says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. Like, what? I confess to you I'm no zoologist. I confessed to you a couple weeks ago I'm no biologist. I'm also not a zoologist. I'm not anyist atheist, apparently. Uh, I've seen camels. I lived in a place that was hot enough to have camels, which probably tells you you're living in a bad spot. Uh, if you're living in a place where camels are in their natural habitat thriving, you're in the wrong place. Like as in Arizona, camels are very big. Here's the deal, like camels can thrive there. If they, if they were here, they'd be a waterlog mess, right? Like the camel keeps their water in their hump. They would have like 12-foot humps here in, in Oregon or something, they'd be turned into monsters here or something, right? Camels are huge, like they're enormous. We went to the zoo in Phoenix and it's like, they're way bigger than horses. They're these massive creatures. And this one's also free. The eye of a needle is small. In case you didn't know. Camel's big, needle's small, they don't fit. What are you talking about? Like, what's going on here? A couple things we've got to pull from it. Why is it so hard for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God? It's not like Jesus is like, you know what, I prefer broccoli, I don't like cauliflower. Like, I don't know. Like, i got my preferences. I'm more of a coffee than a tea guy. He's not going to be like, I just, I kind of like the poor, not the rich. Like, that's not what's happening here. It's hard for the wealthy to feel needy and dependent on the king. That's why it's hard for them to enter the kingdom. It's especially hard for the rich not to trust in themselves and their possessions, but to trust in Jesus and surrender to Jesus. It's hard. When you don't feel need in your life, it's hard to have a posture of need in your heart towards God. It's hard to trust in the inheritance and riches of Jesus when you've got a pretty sweet trust fund. Like, that's why it's hard for the rich to inherit the kingdom. It's hard to trust in Jesus well you got plenty to trust in yourself from a worldly perspective. That's the first thing I'll say. There's a couple things I just want to point The first one is that's why it's hard to inherit. The second thing I want to say is, like with our goodness, we just gotta be honest, we want to compare ourselves to everybody else and say, see, I'm I'm good. Again, I'm not like Susan, like I'm a good person. Like she's awful, I'm awesome. Like, you know, we always want to compare ourselves to like the worst person and be like, see, I'm a good person. I'm not at least I'm not like them. We do the same thing with our wealth. It's like, I'm not rich. I'm not, you know, Bill Gates or Elon Musk. You know, I drive past on Brookwood and I see Phil Knights like seven private jets, and it's like, I'm not the wealthy. Like, Jesus can't be talking to me here, right? Like, we want to weasel our way out of this. like, Jesus, this is about somebody else, like, who really should listen to this and heed the advice. But for me, I'm good. But we need to hear here that, guys, we are the rich. We are the rich. Globally, we are the rich today. Like, we are the rich. And historically speaking, we're like the most wealthy society in the history of human civilization and every single one of us, we just got to be honest with this stuff, guys. Like every one of us lives at the level kings of old could have only like dreamed about. Every single one of us. Can you imagine if like an old Persian king showed up at your house and was like, what is this, what is this chariot that you have? You know, it uh, runs at the speed of a thousand stallions. You know, it's like, why is this amazing? Place? The roof doesn't leak. They'd walk into your fridge and be like, what feast are you preparing with these choicest of meats? You know, like, like, what do you mean you eat meat every day? Like, they'd be like, this is amazing. They'd open your, they'd, you know, they'd open your bathroom and be like, you know, where's the servant that takes out your waste? Like, where does this at? Like, uh, we must have a legion of servants here that must keep this, you know, looking like this. You know, they'd open your, I don't know what accent this is. It's definitely not Persian, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're just going to keep going with it. You know, they would open the pantry and it'd be like, storehouses of grain reaching to the moon, like... He'd be like walking to a Costco and he'd faint. You know, he'd be like, what is this place? And you can just, you can afford the things there. They'd be amazed. (laughs) We are the rich. And therefore we need to hear this warning from Jesus. So it's hard because we trust in ourselves when we're rich. We are the rich. Number two, third thing I just want to pull out of this is that Jesus' warning is that it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom, not that the rich are excluded from the kingdom. It's an important distinction. That's good news, right? If we're the rich, the good news we're not excluded. Uh, But it does say it's difficult because the demarcation line is faith in Christ versus not in Christ, not rich or poor. The demarcation line for the kingdom is not rich or poor. The demarcation line is trust and faith and love in Jesus or not, being in Christ or not in Christ. See, there are faithful men and women in the Bible. We see faithful men and women of God like Abraham, uh, or Lydia in the early church, she was a businesswoman who sold purple goods. She was, she was quite wealthy, Ho- hosted church in her house. Like, there are faithful rich men and women. There's also unfaithful rich. You know, there, there's faithful poor, like Mary and Joseph. We see them having to offer uh, the, the, the smallest of sacrifice because that's all they could afford. We see faithful poor, like Mary and Joseph. And then there's unfaithful poor as well. And the goal is to be faithful. And serve the Lord in all we do and all we have, and all our wealth, whether He's entrusted you with much or entrusted you with little, the goal is faithfulness, not the accumulation or the disintegration of stuff. The goal is faithfulness to Jesus, but no matter how much or how little you have. That's the third thing And the fourth thing I want to say about this point, and again, we've got to be honest, is we need to be truthful about the allure and the danger of wealth, because it's real. It's real. We have to be honest that there is a significant temptation that wealth will bring us satisfaction, that wealth will bring us security and life and access, that it will bring us identity. Wealth does seem to offer security. And man, in this day and age, doesn't that sound good? Wealth does seem to offer us security. Money does seem to offer life. If you just had money, you'd be able to do this, this, and that, right? Riches do invite us to serve it. Riches do invite us to strive for it and find our identity and having it and do everything that we can to preserve it and protect it. Money invites us to have faith that it will bring us life. And all of this is pretty much the very definition of idolatry. These are the waters we're swimming in. Just got to be honest about it. I think part of my job is, is to remind us of the truth. We used this image, you know, a few weeks ago that the, the world often is like a house of mirrors distorting things, but part of our job here is to be, see a clear picture of the truth of the world, of ourselves, and of God. And church, the truth is there is a graveyard of men and women who have traveled down this road believing that wealth will lead them to life and satisfaction and joy, and they, they find this road wanting. They find this road does not bring life. Because idols never fail to fail. Idols never fail to fail. They always fail, sooner or later. And we can say, you know, we we, we say we believe that like the Bible tells us this stuff clearly. In first Timothy six, it says that the desire for riches is a trap, leading to ruin and bringing many sorrows. It talks about the uncertainty of riches, the deceit of riches, the pain in our life that comes when we try to orient our whole life around getting and acquiring and maintaining and living for wealth. The Bible is clear on this, and we can say we know this, but we often live like we don't. Like we can say we can put it on a Hallmark card, right? We can, put it, we can tweet it out like money won't buy happiness. And we can all like check the box and say, yeah, we agree with that. But do we live like it? Because money doesn't buy happiness. It doesn't buy joy. It doesn't buy life. It doesn't buy satisfaction. And it doesn't buy peace. But I, I think part of my job of is to be like, let's just be honest again. Like, We live as if, like deep down, we actually think it might. Like I, if I'm honest with myself, like I'm not sitting here immune from this stuff. Like I'm, say with Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. Like this isn't a message like, hey, this is for you and not for me. Like this is for all of us here. Like, I often believe as I drove fast. We drove to Lake Oswego yesterday, and there was the big, you know, there's the lottery sign, and it was like $190 million, and it's like, yeah, I think a lot of my problems will go away if I won $190 million. Like, I don't know. Like, and we know about the stories about, like, people that win the lottery or come into great amounts of wealth, and, like, that doesn't lead to their life. They're not happy, and I just think, like, well, because they're spending it wrong. Like, I don't know. Like, I do it right. Like... These guys are dumb. I would do it right. You know, like, I would actually be satisfied. We think of everybody else, like, yeah, they, it doesn't work for them. But for me, I don't know. I think that probably sounds pretty awesome. Like, and there's a sense here of, like, and we it's in every single one of you. So it's not that I'm, like, some psycho. Like, you're, you all are in the same boat. Let's be honest. Like every single one of us. And this is the invitation of faith. Like, this is where the invitation of faith comes in. Faith that Jesus is better than any treasure the world could ever offer. That Jesus offers a security better than the security of wealth. That Jesus offers something better than money could ever buy. That as I look at that sign, I say, do I really believe that Jesus is better than that? This is where the opportunity of faith comes in. Do I believe that Jesus is better than the world's best thing? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if we're looking to our goodness or if we're looking to our wealth. Either way, we're trusting in ourselves. Yeah, we were trusting ourselves. And one of the greatest, like, Western, modern lies is that if we just look within ourselves, we can solve our problems and find life. One of the greatest lies is just look within you. Just, you know, the answer to all your problems is right there within you. If you just tried hard enough, if you just were good enough, if you just, you know, accumulated enough stuff and gathered enough assets, if you just grinded hard enough, got a side hustle, if you just work hard enough, like, then you can be anything, be anywhere, you'll be, succeed and everything will be amazing. But here's the deal. If we're the problem, then we can't be the solution. Like, we, we can't find the solution. Like, if we are the problem, if sin is the problem and it's in us, then we're not the solution. We need someone outside of us to save us. We need someone outside of us to rescue us and lead us to life. And so the last point, again, what are we talking about? What are you trusting in to lead you to life? It's not your goodness. It's not your wealth. But number three, Christ's redemption. This one will actually work. Read with me Mark 10, 26 to 27 we got some good news here. The disciples were even more amazed. (laughs) And they said to each other, well, who then could be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Some things are just worth celebrating. Something that is worth getting excited about. Uh, we have some friends that are having us over tonight. Uh, you know they're good friends because they're making carne asada for us, apparently. So I get excited about a good taco. You know, I can get excited about this. I can get excited about the Mariners' 14-game winning streak. We won't talk about the next two games. Uh, you know, I get excited about the Seahawks winning the Super Bowl. You know, I can get excited about these. These things are good. They're good things. But some things are even better than that. And one of those things is God saving sinners. One of those things is salvation actually being available to us in Jesus. That's better news. Good news is that God is able to save the moral and the immoral. The good news is that God saves the good and the bad, that God is able to save the rich and the poor because God saves sinners. We want to trust in Christ's redemption because salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the life, and he comes to give life abundantly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his work. Jesus is bigger than our false gods, and Jesus is better than our idols. With man, it is impossible to be saved. We are not good enough, and we cannot buy our life, but Jesus can. Jesus is good enough, and Jesus buys us by his blood. Our redemption cannot be purchased by our morality and it will not be purchased by silver or gold. It is purchased and secured by the precious blood of Jesus. It is all God's grace. It's all His undeserved favor. It's not something we earn. It's not something we achieve. It always was grace. It forever will be grace. It always was. Salvation is not by our effort, it is by Jesus' effort. Come on. It is not by our achievement, it is by Jesus' achievement. It is not by our works, but it is by Jesus' work on the cross who says it is finished. Amen? This is good news. This is good news. I didn't do anything for it and neither did you. Jesus invites us to trust in it. So the call today is trust in Christ's redemption. Trust in Christ's redemption. This is good news to believe in. This is good news to build our life upon. Trust in Christ's redemption. You don't earn it. You receive it. We receive it with grateful hearts. So I got some final verses for us. Verses 28 to 31. And then Peter spoke up. We left everything to follow you. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. First. There's a cost to following Jesus. The disciples want to know if it's worth it. They want to, is, is it worth it? Jesus clearly says, in him all is being redeemed. And one day all will be restored. Trust in Jesus. Redemption is here today in Jesus. Salvation is here today in Jesus. Restoration is coming in Jesus. Discipleship to Jesus is a combination today of promise and persecution. It's got to be honest. Discipleship unto Jesus is a combination today of promise and persecution, of sweetness and of suffering. But a glorious, promised, real, true, good restoration is coming. And Jesus is assuring all of us today that those who have answered his call, that those who are suffering, that those who have given up, that those who have felt the cost of discipleship, that they are blessed and that it is worth it. Jesus is saying it is worth it. And you might be sitting here with tears in your eyes. It's worth it. So in closing, church, We all have faith in something to bring us life. We're all going to have faith in something. Are you going to trust in your own goodness? Are you going to trust in it to be enough? Are you going to trust that your riches will satisfy? Or will you trust in the one who gave it all, who paid it all, who died and rose again, and who is coming again to make all things new? See, Jesus offers you something better than your goodness. His perfect record in righteousness. Jesus offers something better than your wealth could ever provide. Eternal life. Build your life on Him. Trust alone in Him. Have faith in Him. I want to say, if you've been trusting in your own goodness, I want to invite you today to trust in Jesus. If you've been sitting here trusting in your own goodness, in your own religious activity, I want to invite you today to trust in Jesus with inflation and gas prices and home prices and food prices all soaring, if you've been trusting in your own wealth to provide security, I want to invite you today to trust in Jesus in his provision in his security. Jesus died for you. He loves you. And he alone has true and secure and eternal life. So church, let's not go away sad turning from Jesus and trusting in ourselves. Let us receive Jesus' invitation to turn and trust in Him alone. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we come here and we say, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, but we renounce our goodness. We say it was never enough, it'll never be enough. We trust in Your goodness alone. And Lord, for those who are sitting here that maybe this is hitting them, uh, it's hitting too close to home, that we've been trusting in our own goodness, we've been trusting in our religious activity, Lord, we come here in a posture of faith saying we trust in it no more. We trust in you, Jesus, in your righteousness, Jesus, in your perfect record, in your death for us. And Lord, if we've been sitting here trusting in our riches in these such unstable, insecure times, Lord, we come here and we say, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. But we say we renounce our riches being what we build our life upon, being what we trust in, what we serve and what we live for. We come here and we say, we trust in you, Jesus. We trust in your redemption, Jesus. We build our life on you, Jesus. You are enough. You are better than the world's best thing. You are better than our goodness. You are better than our riches. You are So, Lord, as we respond, help us to be honest, do the work in our own heart of what we need to turn from to turn to you. Lord, help us to have faith. Help us to have faith that you are enough. Holy Spirit, help us. We need you. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. And all God's people said,